Well, good morning, church. Wonderful to see you. That song is uh, like the perfect theme song for the book of Colossians. Christ is enough for me. Everything that I need is in him. Everything you need is in Christ. You need nothing else. You know, you watch a, a TV, sh TV station like QVC, they're going to tell you all kinds of things that you need, uh, that you never have what you need. You know, they're going to tell you that, you know, some workout routine, P90X, so the ab roller, the shake weight, you know, the thigh master, whatever it is, right? Thing after thing. This is what you need if you're really going to enjoy life, if you're really going to be happy. You know, and there's kind of like the QVCs of Christi Christianity, right? Yeah, Christ is great, but if you really want to grow, what you should do is enter into this program or you should follow these steps or you need to get on doing these rules or you need to have visions or you need to go through angels or you need to this or that or the other thing you know even within the church there's sometimes people that would tell you there are secrets that you need to unlock if you're really going to experience God and know Christ in a real way they're going to come to you with promises of wholeness, victory, unity, love, knowledge, freedom. Now they're going to say, Christ is great, but if you really want the secrets, you have to come to us. And that's kind of what's going on in the church in Colossae. We're in the book of Colossians. You could turn to chapter 1. As you do that, we've looked at the first, almost through the first chapter here. And Paul received this report about this church. And really the report was great. Everything's going really well. They have faith in Christ. They have love for one another. They have hope. They're looking forward to the future. Everything's going really well. And I just imagine Epaphras telling Paul this and Paul being super encouraged. And then Epaphras says, there's, I mean, there's like these few people, you know, that are coming in and they're trying to like say, you know, you need this other thing in addition to Christ. But I mean, overall, everything's going really well. And Paul says, get me a pen. I need to write to these people. Because the idea that Christ is great, but he's not quite enough, that is a danger. And that is a danger that will just suck the life out of this church. The reason this church is doing so well is because they would sing a song like that. Christ is everything that we need. I don't need anything else other than Christ. That's what this letter is all about, encouraging these believers. You have everything you need in Christ. He's the mystery. He is the mystery. He's the one who makes sense of everything. Christ is the only person we'll see that makes sense out of Paul's ministry in verse 24. Christ is the only person who makes sense of what God's been doing in the world for the last thousands of years. And Christ is the pers only person who can make you whole. Mystery solved. Christ is everything. So let's pray and then we'll look at this. Father, I'm sure we've all heard it before, um, just promises of maybe victory over sin if we would just follow this program, promises of healing or promises of victory if we would just do X, Y, Z, that there's some secret that if we could just unlock it, then we'd really see you at work. We'd really get to experience you. And many of us maybe have believed those things. And we've gone down the road of empty promises and found that they don't satisfy and they don't deliver on what they say they're going to do. Lord, all we need is Christ. He is everything and anything that we could possibly need. 
Lord, remind us of that this morning. He's the only one that makes sense out of a ministry like Paul's, out of what you've been doing in the world ever since the beginning. And, you're, and Christ is the only one who can make us stand before you holy, blameless, and above reproach. And so just amaze us with Christ once again this morning. Paul says his ministry was proclaiming Christ. All I want to do for believers and unbelievers is proclaim Christ because he is everything. May we just get even the smallest sense of him being everything once again because we know that in that our lives will change. So do your work through your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So there's a few mysteries in this passage, and the first mystery is right in verse 24, but before we go there, just flip back to verse 15. Paul's describing who Christ is. He says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he ranks first place. Verse 16, for in him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Christ is God. He made everything. Later on, it's going to say that everything holds together by Christ's power. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Verse 21, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. So Christ is God, and Christ is our Savior, which makes verse 24 that much more mysterious and surprising. Look what Paul says in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, for your sake. What? Wait. You just said that Christ is God. He created all things. He holds all things together. He saved you. Where does suffering come into place? If he's God, if he's in control of everything, what, where does suffering fit into that? I mean, if he's really God, it's like, you're not going to have to suffer, right? So suffering, that doesn't make sense. Why would you even suffer? But then Paul says something even more surprising. He says, I rejoice in my suffering. Like, what? Those two things don't go together. Suffering and rejoicing, right? We complain in our sufferings. We don't rejoice in our suffering. So mystery number one, how can Paul have joy in suffering? Now, you might think, well, maybe Paul's suffering wasn't that bad. You know, so he was able, you know, Christ is good, so I can go through a little minor aches and pains, you know, in order to enjoy Christ. Well, not true. Let's go look at a catalog of Paul's sufferings, the sufferings that he says, I rejoice in. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you could turn there. 2 Corinthians 11. We get a catalog of Paul's sufferings. He's sort of, in a sarcastic way, boasting about all his sufferings here in 2 Corinthians. He says in verse 23, chapter 11, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. And now here he begins to list. This is the catalog of his sufferings that he says in Colossians 1 that he can rejoice in. 
I had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings. Right? He was beaten so many times that he literally cannot count or remember how many times he was beaten. He was often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Five times he was whipped on the back with 40 lashes less one. Christ went through that once. Paul went through that five times. The thought behind that, 40 lashes less one, the thought was 40 will kill you. So we'll take away one. And Paul went through that five times. And Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, so there's even more that Paul did not include in this list, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Go back to Colossians 1, verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. How is that possible? How is it possible to rejoice in the things that Paul suffered for the sake of others? I think, you know, the principle we sort of understand, right, that there's some benefit that can outweigh even the pain of a situation, right? You think about the birth of a baby. You know, that's a painful experience. It's always a little dangerous for a man to talk about the birth of a baby. But what happens? You go through pain, and then what's on the other end? A beautiful son or a beautiful daughter. And if you ask most moms, they'll say, did you rejoice in the suffering, they would say, yes, I could rejoice even in the suffering because on the other side, I have my beautiful baby boy or girl. So the concept we get that, that there, is, there are times when pain is even worth it because what you get from it is even better than the painful experience was to receive it. Or one commentator says it this way, that there are things that we understand, that you give up something you love for something you love even more. So what does Paul love even more than his sufferings? Right? I mean, if you kind of catalog out all his sufferings and you thought about, you know, how far into the red did Paul's sufferings take him? And when you look at a list like in 2 Corinthians, I mean, that how could there possibly be anything that he would love more than the absence of all of those sufferings? But Paul says there is. And it's in the second half of this verse. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in the Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. What is it? What is it that's more valuable to Paul than even all the sufferings that he endured? 
It's that he gets to take part in filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That is worth it. That makes me joyful even in my sufferings, that I get to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, of course, we're faced with a question, what does that mean? Right? At first glance, it looks like it would be saying something like, oh, well, Christ's afflictions weren't enough, so I'm sort of filling in the gap for Christ's afflictions. That is not what it means, right? We know that's not what it means, because Paul just said that he reconciled all things to himself through his body, through his death on the cross, Christ, referring to Christ. So there's nothing at all that's insufficient about Christ's work on the cross. Christ's work on the cross fully satisfies the wrath of God. Your sins are fully paid for on the cross. So Paul's not saying that somehow his suffering's contributing to your salvation in that sense. So what is Paul saying? I think Paul's saying this. He's saying that Christ's afflictions still have work to do in the world. The effects of his afflictions have not yet been applied to every person who would trust in Christ. That's what he's saying. That Paul gets to bring the afflictions of Christ to new people that have not yet heard about it, and he gets to see them put their trust in Christ. So how does that happen? How does Paul fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Well, look at 2 Corinthians again, this time chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul describes it this way. I think he's talking about the same thing here. Verse 7. He says, We have this treasure, right? The treasure of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the treasure of the gospel. We have this treasure, but where is it? In jars of clay. That's us. Why did God do that? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So what happens? Verse 8, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven, driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that the way that God spreads the afflictions of Christ, the way that God applies the afflictions of Christ to more and more people is through the suffering of his servants. Paul's saying, I get to be the embodiment of the afflictions of Christ. God is going to put on display through my sufferings the afflictions of Christ so that you would see Christ and that you would put your faith in him. That's what Paul's saying back in Colossians chapter 1. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. I get to be the vehicle by which Christ's afflictions are demonstrated to more and more people. And Paul says what? I rejoice. I rejoice that I get to do that. 
I mean, I want people to see the afflictions of Christ. I want them to trust in him. I want them to see that he is everything that they need. And if that means I suffer so that they see that, I can rejoice. I rejoice in my afflictions. In Paul's suffering, the Colossians are seeing a picture of Christ's sufferings. And they're coming to know Christ. You can think of it this way. You know, Christ's sufferings is like, you know, a rock. It's a rock that's dropped in a lake, right? So what happens? You drop this rock in the lake. So Christ's suffering, that's the main thing. That's the rock. That's the thing that actually can forgive your sins. That's the thing that actually will help you be released from the penalty of sin, the power of sin. All of these things happen because Christ suffered. That was the rock that was dropped into the lake. But what happens after the rock is dropped into the lake? You start to get the ripples that continue to spread throughout the rest of the lake. So what's Paul saying? Christ suffered. Christ died on a cross. That's the thing that actually saves you. But what happens as a result is that Christ's servants are picked up in the ripples of Christ's afflictions, and we get to be a demonstration of the afflictions of Christ to the rest of the world. That lake is the rest of people for the rest of time. The gospel needs to go to them. The gospel needs to go to the ends of the earth. So what does he do? He drops the rock, the Christ, in the middle of the lake, and we, as his people, get picked up on the ripples and get to demonstrate the afflictions of Christ to a world that desperately needs him. And Paul can say, in every imprisonment, in every beating, in every lashing, in every toil and hardship and sleepless night, I rejoice. I rejoice because I get to be a picture of Christ to a world that desperately needs him. I rejoice. You know, John Piper has said that suffering is not only the price of spreading the gospel, it's the plan of spreading the gospel. Suffering is not just something that happens to you when you try to advance the gospel. Suffering is actually the plan by which God wants to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. God uses the unjust suffering of his people to pave the way for other people to respond to the gospel. That's the plan. That's not a side effect. That is the plan. John Piper tells a story he heard J. Oswald Sanders share of an indigenous missionary in India. And this missionary would walk from village to village sharing the gospel. Barefoot missionary in India going village to village to share the gospel. And he comes, it's toward the end of the day, he's exhausted, he just wants to stop, but he decides, I'm going to go to one more village. And so he goes to this village, and he tells them about Jesus. And they say, get out of here. We don't want to hear this. Just leave. So exhausted and discouraged, this missionary leaves this village, and he goes and finds a tree, and he just lies down and goes to sleep. He hears, starts to hear these voices, and he wakes up, and he sees that the whole village is gathered around him. And his first thought is, oh great, they're going to probably kill me, right? They're going to put me to death for preaching about Christ. That's his first thought. But as he wakes up, he hears one of the men say to him, we came out to see what kind of man you were. And when we saw your blistered feet, we felt bad for what we had done and concluded you must be a holy man with a very important message for us. And we are here to let you speak to us. 
And J. Oswald Sanders made the point that these feet, these beautiful feet, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet that those, of those that bring good news, that these blistered feet said, I have a message worth hearing. I think that is the perfect picture of I complete in my body what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. J. Oswald Sanders says, Christ can't be there in that village, but we are his body on earth. And Christ has a suffering to offer the world, and he means for missionaries to offer themselves to the people in suffering. And Paul says, if my suffering means that people will see the afflictions of Christ and put their trust in him, then I rejoice. Even if it's beatings, even if it's imprisonments, I can rejoice because people need to know that Christ suffered for them. And if it takes God showing through my sufferings, then I can rejoice, even in that. Back in Colossians 1, Paul views it as a stewardship. He's been given a stewardship, really, of the sufferings of Christ. Look at verse 25. It's for the sake of the church, and then in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul views his ministry, it's a stewardship. What's stewardship mean? Stewardship is I've been given something of great value and I have a responsibility and a privilege to be able to use it in the way it was intended to be used. What does Paul have? He has the word of God. In other words, he has the gospel message. He has the sufferings of Christ as a stewardship that he wants to bring to the rest of the world. If God did this for me, how can I not share this with other people? If he healed me through Christ's afflictions, how could I not? I have a stewardship from God. He says, I need to make the word of God fully known. What he means is, I want to make sure that the word of God gets to every single person in the world. That's what he means. He doesn't mean that I'm going to explain the word, you know, fully or something like that. No, he says, I'm going to take the word to everywhere that it hasn't yet been. That's my stewardship. That's what God has given me. I'm going to bring the message of Christ's afflictions to the ends of the earth through my sufferings. And Paul says, in that, I rejoice. He has joy, right? It's, this is not just like some, you know, spiritual thing that he says because he's an apostle, like, oh, yes, it's a joy for me to do. He really means it. He has a smile on his face when he says things like this because he gets to bring the afflictions of Christ to a needy world. He would, have, he would rather do nothing else. That's what he wants to do. So why is Paul telling the Colossians this? He's telling them this because you know him, You know that one. You know the one who can take that catalog of sufferings and make it seem like light, momentary afflictions compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Right? You know him. You know the one who makes all that suffering worth it. Who who can even give you joy in the midst of all of that suffering. You know that one. So don't go anywhere else. Don't listen to anybody else who tells you you need something other than Christ. You have everything you need in Christ. He's the only one who makes sense out of suffering like this. That's mystery number one. How can Paul have joy in suffering? 
because he gets to carry the afflictions of Christ to a needy world. Mystery number two, how is God going to glorify himself in the world? Look at verse 26. He's talking about the word of God, the gospel. He says it was a mystery hidden for ages and generations. So what was hidden for ages and generations? The gospel, right? How is God going to fix the world? I mean, think back to Genesis 3, where everything started, Genesis 1 to 3. You know, he created man and woman. They were in his presence, enjoying face-to-face fellowship with him without sin. Perfect situation. How long did that last? Not very long, right? I mean, who knows? A few days, a few weeks, maybe? And what does God say? God says, even though you sinned, even though you rejected me, I'm going to fix it. And so what does he say? The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. So Eve has a baby, and she's probably thinking, this is the one, right? You just said, I'm going to have a baby, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, and who's her first child? Cain. And what does Cain do? He murders his brother. And Eve's probably thinking, so when is this going to happen? When are you going to restore things to the way they were? Turns out he's not going to do that for a long time. And people are going to put their hope in different things along the way. God chooses a nation, Israel. He says, Israel, you're going to be the one that's going to be a blessing to the nations. You're going to bring God's blessing back to all the peoples of the earth. And how does Israel do with that job? Not well. They rebel. They ignore God. They hate the nations. They don't want to bring God's blessing to the nations. So thousands of years go by. Moses comes and goes. Judges, maybe the judges will be the one. No, judges come and go. Kings, that's what we need. No, kings come and go. Prophets come and go. Civilizations go from bad to worse. What possible hope do we have of a future with God? Like, nothing works. Thousands of years, ages, and generations are going by, and God has not fulfilled his promises. How's everything going to work? Consider some of the promises that God has to fulfill. All the nations will be blessed. All evil will be judged. The sins of God's people will be paid for. God's people will have a king that would reign forever. God's people would have a holy, merciful, and faithful high priest. God will dwell with his people forever. Sin, sickness, and death will be no more. Satan will be defeated. How are all these things going to happen? And when are they going to happen? It's been thousands of years. When are all of these things finally going to happen? Verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. After thousands of years, how is God finally going to do it? How is he finally going to deliver on all of these promises? He does it through Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 10. Paul wants us to know just how amazing it is that we get to know Christ, the one who accomplished all of the promises that God laid out. 1 Peter chapter 1. 
Verse 10. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Every prophet for thousands of years has just been wondering, how is God going to do it? How is he finally going to forgive his people? How is he finally going to bring blessing to the nations? How is he finally going to dwell with his people in perfect fellowship once again? And the answer is Jesus Christ. That's how he's going to do it. How can the curse of sin be dealt with? Through Christ. How can people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation be reconciled to God through Christ? How can God get glory in a sin-stained world only through Christ? He's reconciled all things to himself in Christ. I mean, this is why Jesus came. He came to bring glory to the Father. Look at John chapter 12. This was his desire, John chapter 12, to glorify the Father. Verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. How is it all going to happen? How is the ruler of this world going to be cast out? How is judgment going to come to the world? How are my people going to be saved when I am lifted up? Christ, Christ is the answer to the mystery. How is God going to do everything that he says he was going to do? How is he going to bring glory to himself in a world that just seems desperate and impossible to save with sin? He does it through Christ. And back in Colossians 1, where is Christ in verse 27, in you. He's in you. The one who the prophets searched for, the one who the angels longed to see, he's in you. The one who crushed the serpent's head that took away the sins of the world, where is he? He's in you. The one who blesses the nations, the one who will reign forever, he's in you. How could you possibly need anything else? He's everything you need. Who's the source of your victory? Christ. Who's the source of your blessing? Christ. Who's your faithful high priest? Christ. Who's your king that's going to reign forever? Christ. Who's the good shepherd that's going to take you through every twist and turn of life? Christ. But there are people coming to the Colossians saying, you need this seminar. You need this book. 
Follow these steps. You need an angel. You need a vision. You have Christ. Don't go to anything else. Mystery solved. Everything you need is in Christ. He is everything that you need. One last mystery, and maybe the most personal of all for each one of us, mystery number three. How can you stand before God holy, blameless, and above reproach? Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There's going to be a day when God's people will be presented mature in Christ. What does that mean? The word mature, it really has this idea of being complete, being whole. You could turn to a, a similar verse just a few verses before, verse 22, talking about Christ reconciled us. To do what in verse 22? He's now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to do what? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul's saying you can stand before God holy and blameless and above reproach. Really? I mean, seriously? I mean, have you seen my life? I make a mess of my life. I'm currently making a mess of my life. And you're saying I can stand before God holy, blameless, and above reproach? I mean, I've ruined my life. I've ruined other people's lives. How can I stand holy and blameless and above reproach before God? I mean, think about Paul, the one writing this. I was arrogant. I thought that I was blameless before you because of the things I did. I murdered Christians for spreading the gospel. And I thought that was ministry. How can someone like that stand before God holy, blameless, and undefiled? How can someone like you stand before God holy, blameless, and undefiled? How can someone like me stand before God holy, blameless, and undefiled? Only through Jesus Christ. What does Paul say? Verse 28. Him we proclaim. That's my ministry. That's my life. I proclaim him because that's the only way that I or anybody else will ever stand before God holy, blameless, and undefiled. I'm going to spend my whole life, he says, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom to present everyone mature in Christ. What does Paul say? I'm going to warn everyone. When I see them going down a road, when I see them looking to something else to make them holy, blameless, and undefiled before God, I'm going to warn them. It's not going to work. It's not going to satisfy. Only Christ is going to make you holy, blameless, and undefiled before God. I'm going to teach them. That means I'm going to tell you that only Christ can do this. He's the only one that can deliver. Are you struggling with sin? He's the only one. In him alone can he deliver you from sin. Are you searching for joy and peace? He's the only source. There's no other source. You cannot find it anywhere else. And all I want to do, Paul says, I want to proclaim him to everyone because he's the only one who can do what he can do.
I mean, you think back, you circle back to Paul's reason for rejoicing. How can he rejoice in suffering for you, even in great suffering for you? It's as though he's saying, I can do that because I envision the day when I get to present you to God holy, blameless, and undefiled. No longer burdened by the guilt of your sin, no longer drowning in your doubts and anxieties and fears, no longer a slave to what other people think of you, free from the aches and pains and sickness and sadness and disappointments of this life, I get to present you one day before God, holy, blameless, and undefiled. That's why I can rejoice. And how does this happen? How can I do How can I be able to do that one day? Only through Christ. Christ alone can take away the guilt of your sins. Christ alone can free you from the burdens of your fears and anxieties and disappointments. He's the only one that's going to deliver you from aches and pains and sickness and sadness and death. Christ alone can make you whole. And if it means suffering, I don't care. I'll even rejoice in the sufferings because that's what I'm looking forward to. That day when you can be whole before God. Nothing else is going to do that. No steps, 10, 12, whatever. No steps are going to do that. No secrets, no angels, no visions. Nothing else is going to do that. Nothing else is going to make you whole. Christ alone. Now think for a moment, again, who's writing this letter? Paul. Right? I mean, you might, later on, he's going to talk about visions and angels and this, that, and the other thing. And he's saying, don't focus on those. Focus on Christ. You might say, well, yeah, but Paul, I mean, you probably never experienced those things. Not true. He says he prophesied. He says he spoke in tongues more than anybody else. He went to the third heaven, wherever that is. He healed people. Handkerchiefs and, you know, aprons that he touched were brought to other people who were sick, and they were healed by touching his handkerchief. And what does he say? Put your trust in the handkerchief. No! Put your trust in Christ. He raised the dead. Paul raised the dead. What does he say? Put your trust in an experience. Put your trust in a vision. No! Put your trust in Christ. He's the only one who can do what you need to be done. That's the secret. That's the mystery. How, are all these, how can all these things happen? They all come through a person, Jesus. That's why Paul says, I'm happy to suffer. I'm happy to suffer for his sake. I can even have joy in my suffering because I get to be a part of presenting people before God, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now that's a future day that that will actually happen, that you'll be presented before God, holy, blameless, and above reproach but you can start experiencing that here and now. Imperfectly, yes, but truly, you can experience wholeness in Christ even now. He will, in this moment, deliver you from the penalty of sin, but he'll also begin freeing you from the power of sin. He can mature you. He can make you complete. He can make you whole. It's only him who can do it. That's why Paul says in verse 29, back in Colossians 1, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
It's like, what does he do? He says this, proclaiming Christ. That's what I want to do. That's all I want to do. Even if it means toil and struggle and agony and heart, I'm, that's what I'm going to do. Why? Because I want you to be encouraged. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. How does knowing his struggle help me? I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. You knowing this struggle will do what in verse 2? Your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. You, you, I want to, I'm telling you my struggle. Why? Because I want you to be encouraged. You know this one. You know the one who can give joy in the midst of suffering. You know the one who will answer every promise that God has ever made. You know the one who's going to present you holy, blameless, and undefiled. May your hearts be encouraged. You have everything you need in Christ. Last phrase in verse 3. What does it say we have in Christ? In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything you could possibly need for life is in him. You don't need a book. You don't need a seminar. You don't need steps. You don't need rules. You don't need a vision. You don't need an angel. You have everything you need in in him are hidden all the treasures of what? Wisdom and knowledge. Everything you need to know, you have in Christ. And wisdom. How do I apply all the things I know to all the twists and turns and ups and downs of life? All the wisdom that you need is where? In a seminar. No, it's in Christ. You have everything you need in Christ. To, I'm going to give an example for my fellow millennials or Gen Xers out there. How many people have ever seen the cartoon DuckTales? Has anyone seen that? DuckTales, right? You have Uncle Scrooge, and at the beginning of every DuckTales episode, what, is, what do you see Uncle Scrooge do? It's like, well, he puts on a little bathing suit, you know, he puts his goggles on, he gets a snorkel, and then he dives off a diving board into what? All his money, right? It's all this, this huge vault that's full of gold. And his favorite activity is just to go swimming around in this vault of gold. That's a picture of what we get to do in Christ. We just get to jump off the diving board into the riches of Christ and swim around. Everything that we could possibly need, we find in Christ. So here's what we don't do. If we need something, we don't go rummaging around the couch cushions looking for it. Right? We don't go searching under the refrigerator for some piece of wisdom or knowledge that we might need. What do we do? We get to go to the vault and just dive in and enjoy all the riches of Christ. Everything that you need is in him. And so don't go to anything else. And so what's the so what of this passage? Why does Paul tell us any of this? First and foremost, he's telling you this so that you stay the course. Because people are coming, and they're going to tell you, yeah, 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 Jesus, that's fine. You can serve Jesus. But if you really want to be happy, if you really want joy, it's in this, this hidden thing that I found and I discovered. And if you would come to me, then I can show you this mystery, and all your problems will be solved. Paul says no. Everything you need 
is in Christ. Stay the course. Do not be diverted from your love and passion for Christ. John Piper says, the way that people fall short and make shipwreck of their lives is by turning away from the all-satisfying hope of glory, which is theirs in Christ. So that's first, stay the course. Second, pray for us as leaders and hold us accountable. This is the kind of ministry we want to do at Valley Bible Church. Proclaiming Christ, warning and teaching every man to present everyone mature in Christ. May we never put our hope in steps or programs or anything else. May we always point you to Christ. Pray for us that that would be the case. You know, whether God has me here one day or 40 years, I pray that this is always the hallmark of my ministry. I preach Christ because that's the only thing that you need. And then lastly, like Paul, toil for others to know and enjoy Christ. You know, he says in verse 24, I rejoice in my afflictions. He's talking about the fact that God put him in certain afflictions and he could find joy even though God put him there. But notice it's a little bit different in verse 29. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Right? God put him in afflictions in verse 24, and Paul had joy in afflictions. Who puts himself into toil and struggle and agony in verse 29? Paul does. I volunteer for it. It's not something that I just do if God puts me in the situation. It's something I sign up for. I want to toil for you. I want to struggle for you. Because the afflictions of Christ are worth it. People knowing the goodness of Christ, that their sins can be forgiven, that they can be presented holy and blameless and undefiled, it's worth a struggle. It's worth agony. And so like Paul, toil for others' enjoyment of Christ. But also do it knowing this at the end of verse 29, that when you do that, whose power is on display? Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. By his energy, by his supply, you can do it. And so knowing it's for Christ, knowing it's for the wholeness of everyone who puts their faith in him, ask God to use you, to even put you through the agony and the struggle of living for somebody else's enjoyment of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're just humbled in many ways, humbled by what you've done for us in Christ because we know who we are. Maybe even other people don't know exactly all the ins and outs of who we are, but we know it. We know we didn't deserve salvation. We didn't deserve Christ to come and to suffer afflictions that would be a benefit to us. We didn't deserve to have our sins forgiven. We weren't asking for our sins to be forgiven. And yet you sent your son, the very image of the invisible God, the one who created all things, the one who holds all things together, and he died on the cross for our sins. And we are so humbled by that. And Lord, we're also humbled and convicted by all the ways that we run to other things so quickly, thinking that they're going to satisfy that they're going to give us joy, that they're going to help us in our struggle against sin, that they're going to be what the key to making us whole. 
and we divert ourselves from the true source of all blessing and all power in Christ. And so, Lord, help us to stay the course. Help us to have our eyes fixed on Christ, enjoying him every single moment of every day, never looking to anything else to find satisfaction and purpose. And Lord, we're humbled that there have been men like Paul that would go through the things that he went through and they would do it with joy so that we could know the gospel. That was the stewardship that you gave him to suffer in the ways that he suffered so that other people might see the life of Christ. And Lord, we humbly ask, we don't look for suffering, but if we really see Christ for who he is, we ask that you would spread, even through us, the afflictions of Christ to other people. Lord, because our greatest joy would be knowing that we would have a hand, that we would get to be part of the presentation of somebody else being made holy and blameless and undefiled. And that's a scary prayer. And so we do it banking on the fact that it says that your power and your strength would be with us if you call us into those kinds of ministries. So Lord, may we walk by faith. May we look to Christ. And would you use us? Use us to spread the afflictions of Christ to a world that desperately needs it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.